Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome a very dear friend, Allison Brown, President of the University of Maryland Medical Center Midtown Campus in Baltimore. Before taking on her current role, Allison was Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer for the University of Maryland Medical System. She holds a bachelor's degree in nursing from the University of Vermont and a master's degree in public health from Johns Hopkins. Allison, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Tom. It's fun to be here with you. You've been kind enough and generous enough to be part of an awful lot of our research studies over the years, and you've volunteered your time, including the one that we're in the middle of doing right now, in which we're exploring what life might be like under all-payer rate parity. You've also spent much of your career in an environment where hospital prices have been regulated. Yes. And where you had some latitude around how to allocate what you guys call global spending budgets. Can you think of a few examples where that latitude enabled you to come up with some innovative solutions to difficult problems where you think it might have been more difficult to do without those global budgets? Sure. What the hospital industry in Maryland had to face in 2014 when we implemented a new waiver with CMMI in the state of Maryland was not so much the need for latitude, but actually a mandate to think very differently about our programs and services that would result in reducing hospital utilization, reducing 30-day readmissions and bending the cost curve on the portion of healthcare, Medicare spending in Maryland that centers around acute care hospital utilization. So it was really a mandate that we had to rethink how we're spending our time and effort to, frankly, keep people out of the hospital if they could be cared for effectively in the community. What might be one or two things that you guys have done or tried that you think have worked well, Mm -hmm. but that would have been very difficult to do in a traditional pay-as-you-go kind of a system? Sure. So when we were faced with this new waiver that capped what any individual hospital could charge on an annual basis, so our revenue's fixed. And therefore, in order to really think about how we manage our margin and make investments in programs and services, we had to think entirely differently about how we're taking care of patients. And we segmented it into sort of two buckets. What are the changes that we need to make that impact what we called inside out, patients inside the hospital getting out in a faster, more efficient, safe manner. And I can say a few things about the new practices that we implemented to do that. And then we also had to think about, frankly, for the first time in an intentional way, let's think about outside in. Let's think about patients outside and how do we keep them outside and not have them come into the expensive, high-cost, acute care hospital setting. That way of thinking about things is, is different than I think any of us have done. Well, yeah, up until 2014, even though we were in an all-payer state, how many patients came in registered on the top line, right? Mm -hmm. So in this case, the top line is not going to change. So inside out, we had to become much more efficient in how we delivered inpatient care and really reduced the cost of that inpatient care. So we implemented interdisciplinary rounds every morning with a care team. We developed and implemented what we call our transitional care teams. They 
didn't really exist before. We had social workers and care managers doing the work that they do to help people have a safe and timely discharge, but it really got amplified and resourced in an incremental way. We have to think about estimated date of discharge when a patient is admitted. We have to manage patients admitted to observation and trying to make sure their care is all provided within 24 to 48 hours so that we don't have payer denials for hours beyond 48. We've redesigned how we do daily bedside rounding with a multidisciplinary team, residents, fellows, the attending the primary nurse, et cetera, so that we can really become more efficient and therefore move people safely out of the hospital as quickly as is reasonable. So those are sort of the inside-out tactics that we had to invest in and had to some degree, but not to the level that we have today. From an outside-in perspective, we needed to identify those patients who were identified while they were inpatients. These are patients who are at high risk of readmission. These are patients by virtue of their social circumstances, their support systems, their multiple chronic illnesses, the vulnerability of their health. So we implemented what we called our coordinated care center, post-discharge follow-up clinic with wraparound services, nurse practitioners, social work, care management, pharmacists to help with medication education. And that resource is focused on people who are identified as vulnerable and high risk for readmission. And they're seen on an outpatient basis and followed for a certain period of time and then discharged from that program. We also implemented 24-7 care management and social work in our emergency room. So patients who come into the ED, we might be able to avoid an admission by better managing their whatever social challenges housing insecurity, et cetera, could be done. And make sure that people have follow-up appointments scheduled with their faculty, physician, office practice, and so that they can stay outside, if you will, <laughs> stay outside in an ambulatory setting or safely at home. You know, you and I have talked about that in the past, and I've always wondered, how is it that the system, not yours, but just the healthcare system in America, how do you think it is that we got to the point where hospitals and physicians discharge the patient and then just kind of hope for the best in terms of that patient finding their way back in a timely fashion. We always tell the patient, you should follow up with your local doctor or you should follow up with me. But then I don't know that we've always historically done a great job of making sure that they did. Oh, absolutely. I think we haven't really considered it our responsibility to make sure that they did. And the way I think about it is we send people home with packets of information and discharge instructions and after-visit summaries that are 16 pages long, stapled together, and we say, here, go figure this out. Mm -hmm. And I hope we see you again. But I think we live in this healthcare environment every day. And I think we always have to acknowledge that for most people who come to see us, whether it's in a physician office or in an emergency room or a hospital, this isn't something we do every day. In fact, we consider ourselves fortunate if we never have to come to a hospital in our lifetime, right? So for people who are not thinking about the way the system works until they have to, I think we don't appreciate how important it is for us to help people navigate through a very complex, very disconnected, very siloed, very uncoordinated, frankly, mess that we have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that takes intervention. It takes time. It takes 
an attitude about where you spend your staff's time and effort in calling a patient who missed an appointment to make sure that they aren't having a challenge with transportation or something came up and let's get you rescheduled. So the initiative that I think we as providers have to take has become absolutely essential. But it's new, right? It's new work for what we've traditionally viewed in a very passive way, if that makes sense. It does. You know, I'm old enough now to have been a patient a number of times and an inpatient a number of times. I think it helps to have been in the hospital rather than, you know, we've spent our careers in the hospital, but walking the halls. I think it helps to be in the bed. Yes. Just to get a sense for what the patient and particularly their family are going through. They're sick and scared, and we're giving them almost a maze to work their way through and hoping that they come out the other side. Yes, it is a maze. And certainly in the hospital, that's true. And I think it's even, well, I know it's prevalent even in our outpatient centers, right, where we have people who need to see not only the endocrine specialists for their diabetes, but also cardiology, urology, eye visits, a podiatry. So all of these specialists that care for someone who has multiple chronic problems that they're trying to manage. We think about it here at the University of Maryland Medical Center, Midtown campuses, how do we partner with people to achieve their best health? That's a different lens from how do we give people instructions and hope that they follow them. Yep. Whether it's our trainees, our staff within the outpatient centers, which are large and many here on this campus, how do we position ourselves as partners with people who are managing their lives, managing multiple problems, and do that in a way that they know that they're in control and they're supported by this team to achieve their best health, whatever that may be. Let's pick up on that concept of a care team, and particularly in the context of this severe labor shortage that the industry is going through. You've got the broad perspective of having been a nurse, a senior executive in academic medicine, and now the CEO of a complex community hospital in an academic system. What are some of the universal challenges in terms of the workforce, what are some of the universal challenges that are common to all of those settings? And are there any that are somewhat unique to each of the organizational models? Well, here at Midtown, we are an academic medical center, but we describe ourselves as being community-facing. And the array of programs that we offer as a safety net hospital serving Baltimore City specifically does have us think about, to your question, what workforce do you need to care for people who are traditionally underserved, historically underserved, and marginalized? Mm -hmm. So the staffing experiences that we've all had coming through and out of the pandemic and the inpatient setting are not unique here in Maryland. How do you have enough nurses at the bedside or respiratory therapists to care for inpatients? I'm going to put that aside for a moment and focus on how we address the labor. What kind of positions do we need in our outpatient centers to be able to fulfill this vision for partnering with people? And so it includes community health workers. It includes care managers. It includes people we recruit from the community to be embedded in our practices, to meet with people to understand what their housing needs are, what their transportation needs are. And these are folks who don't have professional degrees, but what they do is they relate to people in a way that builds a trusting relationship to be able to provide the kind of advice and guidance that people need. In our emergency room, we now have a cadre of peer recovery coaches who 
when a person comes into the ED in an overdose situation, our peer recovery coaches who are themselves in recovery meet with the patient as part of the care team, talk about what they can do to assist this person in harm reduction if they're open to it at that moment, literally walk them across the street to our Center for Addiction Medicine and get engaged in care. And peer recovery coaches didn't exist five years ago, but they're the type of people who we need to be able to relate to people. I'm fascinated by that concept because those folks will be able to give your clinicians a perspective on some of the risk factors that that patient is going to face when they walk out the door that we might not, given the fact that we don't live that, we might not have thought that way, yeah? Yes, and the peer recovery coaches are highly valued by our clinical teams because they know what the person's medical problem is and every person who comes into our ED has a social problem and a medical problem. And the peer recovery coaches can relate to someone in a way that the person in the white coat never will. And they readily acknowledge that when we think about how are we going to manage this person's clinical medical crisis that we have at the moment, but how are we going to make sure that they don't come back or they get the treatment that they need, right, to deal with their disorder? The peers are just that. They're peers. They're trusted. They're relatable. They've walked in this person's shoes and they make a huge difference. You know, there's a concept that I have recently written about, and it's an analog to what you described, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of the population that you're describing. I wrote an essay a number of months ago in which I used this term elder core. It doesn't exist. It's something that I made up. The idea was that for those of us that are getting near retirement age and still have energy and some knowledge of the healthcare system, wouldn't it be nice if our generation did what our generation did back in the 60s in the Peace Corps. And if we looked at healthcare and helped patients with navigation, you're taking that kind of older folks with some experience concept and moving it to the socioeconomic and the chemical dependency population and saying, let's create a volunteer situation where they can help each other. Yeah. I like that a lot. That's an interesting thought, right? Everybody, it's how do you have a cadre of volunteers who can work as concierges, right, to help someone for whom our our system is so complicated and complex and varies by what insurance card you have in your pocket and what resources you have and what you understand about the services that someone says you need, but what's a pulmonologist? (laughs) What's a nephrologist? (laughs) Exactly. And a 35-year-old care navigator is not going to be able to relate to a 70-year-old patient the way that you or I might be able to in a few years. And so, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, if we took our familiarity with the healthcare system and then looked to our agelings, plus they'd get our humor. If we told them a joke, they'd get it, right? (laughs) But Right. How how helpful would it be to have somebody who looks like us and talks like us to help us through the roughest time in our life? And you're doing that with that very difficult population. I wonder if maybe you could take that idea and flip it up to the Medicare folks and say, let's help the chronically ill aged population with some peers of their own. That's a really interesting idea because fundamentally, who's able to relate to someone who is trying to navigate a complex system, right? Someone who looks like me, someone who has 
had the same experience as me, someone who has information and knowledge that I'd like to tap into. Somebody who has the same trouble with stairs. Yeah. Somebody I can trust. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Well, just name it after me. Elder Core. Okay. Elder Core. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Listen, speaking of being old, I'm old enough to remember the days when hospitals utilized licensed practical nurses. My mom was an LPN in in her younger years mm-hmm, before she mm-hmm. passed, or certified medical assistants and, and others who took on a large portion of the inpatient bedside care yes. that a highly trained either baccalaureate or registered nurse didn't need to do. But then as patient acuity rose, it's almost like when managed care started to push the lower acuity folks out of the hospital and we had a higher acuity population we moved toward a much higher level of training in the workforce. With the labor shortages that we have and affordability concerns, do you think that we need to maybe reassess the skill mix of our workforce? Oh, without question. Yes. And without a doubt. And I was a nurse long enough ago to remember actually at Jefferson in Philly being the one RN on a unit at night with 25 patients and having LPNs, nurses, aides, and others to get us through the night. And in that role that I remember, I was really the orchestrator, right? I was the one who had to give the medications and hang blood. Mm -hmm. But I had other people to make sure people were safe and getting the care they need through the night. Today, we are stepping back and looking at the role of the nurse and all the ratios that come along with what's safe in terms of the number of people that any one nurse can manage. But what's really important is how can the nurse, again, be that conductor of a team that's comprised of someone who can help get people out of bed and ambulating safely to the bathroom and back or to get their steps in? How could we have for every nurse at the bedside, a cohort of patients for whom we have also three patient care techs and somebody to assist with mobility. We're looking at really redesigning the models of care. And frankly, we did some of that during the pandemic when we had really, really sick patients and we had to redeploy staff to support the nursing team in very different ways. And so we're looking at how to redesign the team that is providing care. And we have LPNs back in the hospital. And we also just received the certification that's necessary to create our own in-house nursing assistant program so that we can recruit from our community, train, and bring into the workforce the type of people who will be at the bedside helping with those very important tasks and having the nurse work at the top of his or her license. That's not a new concept, but it's one that we're actively designing. So everything old is new again. Everything's old is new again. And we are also, in a real-time way, looking at the impact that the electronic medical record has had on the documentation that is required within our EMR and so much redundancy in particularly nursing documentation that takes so much time. When I'm rounding on our units and I see our nurses in the hall, you know, doing their charting and documentation. They want to be in the room with a patient. They don't want to be in the hallway going through all kinds of torturous clicks and drop-down menus. And so we're across our health system. We have nurses who are designing ways to reduce the time that it takes to document an electronic health record. One of the things that we spent a lot of time talking about a few minutes ago were the folks with 
challenging socioeconomic conditions. The mm-hmm. You said it very nicely, the folks that had been left behind a little bit. Yep. I read a terrific article that you wrote for the Baltimore mm-hmm. Times, and there's a quote in there that you said team-based medicine should not be reserved for only those people who can afford to assemble their own medical team. I'd like to pose a philosophical question for you. America is rightfully less tolerant today of health disparities than we used to be. But do you think that it's enough for us to narrow the gap simply in access to services? Or should we go further and reduce what I would call experiential disparities, Mm -hmm. the amenities available to patients and really kind of the dignity associated with being taken care of? How to respond to that in a way that is other than, oh my gosh, yes, we have to do this. I think as a country, we're finally acknowledging is the extent to which health disparities have existed for generations. And with that awareness, what are we doing about that? The amenities that I believe we need and what we try to build into the models in which we're providing care in a multidisciplinary fashion in our outpatient arena Instead of saying, here's your 16-page after-visit summary that we're printing out for you off the printer and please come back, before people leave the office, when we know that they need to have follow-up appointments with three different specialists, okay, let's sit down together and let's map out with you, Mrs. Jones, what this next set of steps are that we think would be really helpful to help you manage your health. And that takes time. It doesn't take a nurse. Mm-hmm. It takes someone who has the knowledge, the patience, and interacts with someone in a respectful and dignified way and acknowledges that life is complicated. How can I get to all these appointments in one day? How can I get to them in half a day? Why, as I wrote in that editorial, is concierge medicine only for those who can afford it? How do we provide that concierge experience and support to people who don't have the resources that you and I do? It's a little bit like the golden rule. You're talking about treating patients the way we treat our family members or friends of ours. Right. We always try to close uh, our conversations with a question that gives folks a chance to get to know you or to learn something about our guest that they would never otherwise know. I happen to recall a story where you were carrying a rowing shell over your head through the green hills of Ireland or something. <laughs> can, you, can you share with us some of the memories of your rowing your way around the rivers of Ireland, particularly well, as it results to you staying alive? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, so what many people don't know is I am a rower. And I've had the privilege of going on rowing trips in different parts of the world. It's a beautiful way to see another part of the world from the water. And I was on an international rowing trip on the Shannon River in Ireland and quite a collection of people from all over the world. And we were rowing down the Shannon River. And at one point in the river, it becomes a lake. It becomes Loch Derg. And it's a big lake and a storm came up and the wind and the waves and the boats were filling, the rowing shells were filling with water and we're bailing furiously and realizing that we are not going, <laughs> we, this is not going well. <laughs> 
and there were 15 boats. We have to get these boats to shore now. And long story short, we had to get our rowing shells to the shore and we were all rescued by the Irish Coast Guard. So the Irish Coast Guard come to <laughs> retrieve 15 boats that are scattered all over this huge lake, Loch Derg. But the best part about this experience, of course, now that we survived it and it's over, we can laugh about it, is the following day, there are two different newspapers in Ireland, one that's sort of like the National Enquirer. Its headline was Terror on Loch Derg. <laughs> and the, the Irish Times, which is more like a newspaper that you and I would read, just said, International Rowers Rescued from Loch Derg. <laughs> but that was, that was something. Either way, you were at the center of an international incident. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've since rowed down the Thames and the Lot River and Lake Majoro, and that's been a whole lot more fun and, and a whole lot less. Drier. Yeah, yeah, a lot drier. <laughs> Well, listen, speaking of rowing, you and I have been pulling on healthcare Zores together for, I, I think, almost three decades now. And yes, I think back to from managed care at Emerald Lagasse's in the French Quarter in 1995. Yes. yes. To health system strategy over a sandwich at Boog Powell's Barbecue at Camden Yards. Yes. 25 years later. <laughs> Our careers have overlapped actually for far longer than they haven't. And I have to thank you for letting me ride along with you. And thanks for being with us here today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>